You say potato, I say potato. Yes, it's the potato episode. The potato has a long and glorious history, and I'll cover some of the big points as well as tell you some tips for upping your mashed potato and scallop potato game. The keto crowd isn't exactly a fan, and that's okay. It is a stable and easy-to-grow plant. Bugs like it too, and for the upcoming gardening season, it might be a good food to have on hand. There is much to be done with the spud, as we'll see. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode Seventy-Eight. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Stan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Surf over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, to find all the previous episode links, the various social media tabs, and the Facebook icon leads right to the Eating Liberty Facebook group, where a small group of foodies sharing our food successes. From that podcast page, click the link to the support page. You'll see a link to my Muffins e-cookbook, as well as ways to donate to the show through Patreon, Bitcoin, or PayPal. Another way to support the show is by subscribing to the affiliates on the support page. Tom Woods Liberty Classroom and McClanahan Academy are video and audio content courses in history and more and cover topics ranging from the Founders to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and the Liberty Classroom also gets into more content than that, including politics and economics. I'm using some of the Liberty Classroom courses for my daughter. I purchased the Master Level subscription of Liberty Classroom, which is lifetime access to all the courses they've produced, as well as all the courses to be produced. The bonus for Master Level included the Ron Paul Government Course and the Western Civilization Course. My daughter and I are doing Rome right now, and it's very good. In my neck of the world, schools are closed, and this is a great way to give my kids some educational content that I trust. Don't forget to order your coffee mug gifts for Easter or Mother's Day at the Cranky Without Coffee banner link. The last way you can support the show is with a rating and a review on your favorite podcatcher. Between a chip, a U.S. chip that is, and a french fry, nearly everyone knows what a potato is and what to do with it. And when you add such choices as mashed or fondant or macare and O'Brien, or hash browns, or southern fried, or baked, and duchess, and scalloped, and au gratin. Well, you start to see just how much that potato has infiltrated our plates. The potato has been mostly the same, maybe since its origins in the Andes Mountains in South America. In his book, Potato, A Global History, Andrew F. Smith writes, quote, Potatoes contain no fat or cholesterol and are also low in sodium, end quote. There was a time when such traits were coveted in food. Now, 
Diet science has revealed much we did not know, we're not allowed to know, that's another episode, and simply didn't look for. The keto folks will point out that no fat is a big problem. Between fat, proteins, and carbohydrates as the sources of caloric energy, no fat and plainly no protein leaves only carbs. Low sodium, we now know, is not so good since sodium is the element we need to keep the electricity on in our bodies. No sodium, no life. The potato is the same as it ever was. What has changed is our knowledge of what food is and does to our bodies and our health. So first, we travel to South America. Recall back in the oyster episode and the industry that built up around the love of and shipping of oysters. The skills they had and which were increased to build ships was pretty impressive. An at least equally impressive feat was accomplished in the Andes Mountains. Quote, through trial and error, Andean farmers concluded that potatoes could be propagated by seed or by planting sprouts from its tubers. Not all potato plants produce seed balls, which are about the size of a cherry tomato. Growing plants from seeds produced a vast variety of shapes, colors, sizes, and tastes. But when a farmer found a type of potato he liked, he perpetuated the strain by planting the tubers, which are clones of the original plant. In this way, pre-Columbian peoples grew about 200 varieties of potatoes, and thousands more have been subsequently developed. End quote. The book, Potato, A Global History, will be linked on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 78, and it's a very good read. It's a short read with enough history of the potato to satisfy the layperson. If you want more, there are other books for that. All the quotes in today's episode will be from Smith's book. The Incans conquered the Aztecs and the Spanish dispatched the Incans. That's the fastest history lesson you've had since high school, probably. It's interesting to read, but it is beyond this episode. The potato was dehydrated and renamed Chuño, if my pronunciation is right, and was frozen in the mountains. This form of food became both a basis of sustenance as well as a currency for paying of taxes for the South American version of Marodes. I don't know the Spanish translation. This chuño was also almost the sole food fed to tens of thousands of Incan slaves, and later, when the Incans died and their numbers too low, African slaves were fed chuño in the silver mines in Bolivia in the mid-1500s. The potato, as Smith writes, quote, paid for Spain's military conquests and political power in the 16th and 17th centuries, and thus the potato, which fed the workers, had radically changed world history, end quote. History would be altered again in the new world by the potato. A side trip to the Caribbean. While in the Caribbean, the Spanish were introduced to the patatas, which Taino Indians, again, pronunciation issues, uh, which the Taino Indians roasted. Christopher Columbus said they tasted like raw chestnuts. 
John Hawkins, described as a, quote, slaver and adventurer, changed the spelling to potatoes and called them, quote, the most delicate roots that may be eaten and spoken, quote. These are, of course, sweet potatoes, which bear no botanical relationship to the white potato we know. The white potato was called a potato by Europeans, making the visual connection to the two, as well as assigning the white potato the famed aphrodisiac properties of the sweet potato. Yeah, didn't know that, did you? Smith writes at a quick pace, and the history is fun to read. As I said, I'll put a link to that on the show notes page. What's newsworthy for us is in only a few hundred years, the potato would be grown in virtually every country in Europe as well as Russia and the Ukraine. In many of these countries, it was a staple item. That's a big deal. Even with the near global conquest, the potato was seen by royalty and upper classes as food for peasants. It took Antoine Augustine Pimentier, a pharmacist captured in the Seven Year War and held prisoner in Germany, to eat the potato and advocate for it as a food for humans. Smith writes, quote, After the French grain harvest failed in 1769, the Academy Besançon pronunciation launched a competition to identify alternatives to grains. Parmentier wrote a treatise on potatoes and won the contest, end quote. As part of Parmentier's commitment to persuade France to accept the potato, American ambassador Benjamin Franklin suggested Parmentier cook an entire meal, beginning to end, made only of potatoes. Despite this dinner, the potato would need some years before it was seen in a favorable light. The Famine the blight, which caused potato crops all across Europe to fail, had almost incomprehensible consequences for the Irish, but particularly the poor Irish. While potatoes did grow easily in Ireland, that was not the only crop that grew in Ireland. Grains grew well too, but grain farmers earned more by selling it than by feeding it to the poor. Now, this is a complicated and twisted path to get to the end of the story, which is a soup kitchen designed by Chef Alex Sawyer. The blithe oversight of telltale signs by both the farmers and the government and bad planning all around made a bad thing magnitudes worse. Religious intolerance toward Catholics only made that, as amazing as it sounds, worse yet. The potato as food. Before I get into the many ways potatoes have been turned into culinary delights, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, for stocking up on staples like peppercorns or salts, savory spice is my go-to for such things. And since we're talking potatoes, savory spice has a truffle salt made with Italian black truffles that will... Oh my, step up your mashed potatoes <laughs> so nicely. Add truffle salt to your omelets or your popcorn for a super luxurious treat. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice, and use the search bar tool to find 
truffle salt. They have so many great seasonings, and I've talked about them on this show, and I've also bought their barbecue sauce, which was really quite delicious. Check out culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice and get some spice in your life. culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice. Now let's get back into the show. Picking a cooking method and the potato that can be cooked that way. From the most basic boiled or baked to the elaborate puree as Chef Jola Rubichon perfected, it's almost more butter than potato, but OMG, oh, it's amazing. To duchess and in stews, the potato has made a place for itself in our hearts and our bellies and our dinner table. In La Guide Culinaire, Escoffier includes 59 unique preparations for potatoes, some simple and some less so. Now, that's just potato dishes. That doesn't include adding them to something else where they're just ingredient. It was the French who basically perfected the early deep frying. We might be able to credit Thomas Jefferson for the American fondness for French fries. He, after all, did bring a French chef to cook in the White House, and in France, the Pomme de terre frite was very popular. That term became shortened to pomme frites, then frites, and we, of course, know them as French fries. But, alas, it is not to be credited to Jefferson that we owe this, but British cookbook author Eliza Warren and her 1856 recipe for French fried potatoes. The first edition of the Franny Farmer Boston Cooking School cookbook also has a recipe for this in 1896. The hash brown is also a latke or a roasted potato or any many other versions of potato pancake, but all basically a form of shredded potatoes, raw or cooked, and fried on a flat surface, you know, a griddle or a pan, till golden brown and crustily delicious. Change the shape to a cube, Instead of a grate, add some peppers and onions and its O'Brien potatoes. Remove the veg and its cottage fries. If a cut this way or that way, fried in fat or on fat and the griddle produces an entirely new dish, what can we get from mashed potatoes? Well, glad you asked. Mashes, of course, but then we can turn that into duchess or a kind of potato pancake or into gnocchi, the Italian, an Italian thing, but the French make them a different way. Uh, Macaire potatoes, croquettes, pierogies, even put them in breads. I've made bread from leftover mashed potatoes. I know who has leftover mashers. In the restaurant, we saved our leftover mashed potatoes from the service for either emergency mashed potatoes the next night in service, cream of potato soup, or add them to breads. Very yum. And it was a starch addition for breads that Parmentier was so eager to get French bakers to use instead of wheat, because wheat was a problem at the time, with the crops failing. The problem, of course, is potato starch is an excellent starch, but it has no gluten. Those bakers made bricks, not breads. Of soups, there are two world-famous potato soups, Fichichoise and Parmentier. Hmm. 
So basically, they're the same, but there are a few key differences. One is temperature. Fichichoise is served cold. It was first served in the U.S. in 1917 by Chef Louis Diat, and I think that's the pronunciation of his name, at the New York Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Potato soup with leeks is not unique, but he named it Vichyshoise, and the name has stuck. Vichyshoise, as I've made it, and have been instructed to make it, is a fine balance of the sweet from leeks and potato and heavy cream, and is as smooth as silk. Done well, it is a thing to remember and a thing to enjoy. Potage, or soup, and uh, there is a difference to escoffier between those two things, but that is also another show. Potage Pimentier is a distressingly difficult recipe to find in my cookbooks, but scores of them appear in seconds on a search on DuckDuckGo. Pimentier is, of course, potato soup, and as it happens... Very like Vichyssoise, but hot. Potage Pimentier appears to be a bit of a catch-all term, including mostly any pureed soup which includes potatoes. I've read versions which also have the leek and potato with parsnip, an addition I quite endorse, as well as broccoli or asparagus, which is another perfect spring addition. The thing that is required is the potato to at least boast the name. Such naming is not limited to potato soup. Anything Lyonnaise has onions, and something Florentine is spinach. Potatoes make fine soups since they are nearly all starch, no gluten, and very little, if any, cellulose. Potatoes are also excellent foils for other ingredients as they absorb all the flavors around them. Think of Granny's Pot Roast. Those potatoes have all the potatoey goodness and the beefy goodness, too. The starchy potatoes for mashers or fries are, well, starchy. There are two broad categories of potatoes, the other one being waxy. So we have waxy and starchy. Waxy potatoes make better potato salad, and we see them at the in the red skin kind of potatoes in the store. Sometimes they're white skinned and they might be called Michigan potatoes. Um, and they're kind of a, they're, they're a little less plain starchy than the, uh, Idaho's. Now, you know, in Harold McGee's book on food and cooking, he argues that the starch content in both is virtually identical. But when he wrote the book, it was not entirely known what it is that makes the waxy potato not as starchily mealy. And I don't know either. But there is a difference in how they cook and how they retain their shape. Uh, waxy potatoes caramelize nicely in a pan and make good additions to stews uh, or as boiled wedges because they do hold their shape a little bit better. And they do seem to love caraway seeds in the water. Or that could just be me. All right, enough of the nerd stuff. Let's talk some real cooking. Starch potatoes, the big brown kind used for french fries, make excellent hash browns or cottage fries or baked potatoes because of that starch. It browns nicely. That same starch holds the added cream and butter for that decadent mashed potato, or quite frankly, in his case, the Rubichon's case, mashed potato puree. And how he did this, and I worked at a restaurant in New York 
where the chef worked in Rubichon's kitchen. So at least it's, it's, it's three steps, but it's, it's kind of amazing. Rubichon's ratio was two pounds of, of uh, starch potatoes, six to 12 ounces of warm milk, and eight ounces of room temperature whole unsalted butter and salt. Potatoes are cooked whole in their skins to keep as much starch in as is possible. Then they're peeled while hot, and then the inside part is passed through a food mill, a fine food mill, into a pot on the stovetop on low heat. The purpose here is to let any remaining moisture come out in the form of steam. The drier the starch in the pot, the more fat it can hold. So the starch has a finite amount of stuff, fatter liquid that it can hold. If you take the water out in the form of steam, you make more room for more fat. Add the butter in one ounce portions, strain with a wooden spoon to incorporate that. Now stir carefully because you don't want to wear it. And when that one ounce is nearly incorporated, add the next one ounce and just keep slowly incorporating that. As you add more fat to it, the potato puree is going to take on a different texture and it will be a little bit easier to put the rest of that in there. Now, adjust the consistency with just enough milk to give it that right puree consistency. We're not making soup. We'll have to hold the shape. Now, that alone is a fine mashed potato, but for Rubichon, that's not enough. Pass that mash through a fine screen called the tammy. It's a, it's, it's a very, very fine screen, not like silk screen fine, but very fine screen designed for making, uh, you put things through it. So you pass the vegetable through it, you pass chicken meat through it, you're going to make a mousseline out of something, you're going to make a chicken mousse out of something, or very, very fine mashed potatoes. Adjust the consistency one more time with a little bit more milk, Check the seasoning, and you're done. It's a lot of work to go through, and there's no reason to do this at home. But if you can pull it off, no one will ever forget those mashed potatoes. Now, for a little extra loveliness, while the potatoes are cooking in their skins in the pot, there's two ways to do this. You can add garlic cloves, peeled garlic cloves, to the water, rescue them, and then add them to the potato in the food mill so that garlic, that, that blanched garlic, the raw is gone, that harsh garlic, ah, my gosh, this is garlic, all that goes away. And what you're left with is just kind of a sweet garlic flavor, but garlic and potatoes are like BFFs. They just, it's great together. Sometimes we want the extra starch to come off of the potato. Uh, so a hand-cut french fries as, you know, sticks potato, benefit from a bath. Put them in the water for about an hour to wash off that extra starch. And you can see this starch in the form of when you uh, grate potatoes for hash browns. Now, no fingers, please. After they're grated, salt them. And if you want fresh thyme or fresh rosemary, chop that up and put that in there and let that sit for a few minutes. And the salt's going to draw out the excess water and some of the excess starch. So lift the potatoes out of the bowl, let the water fall back into the bowl, and give that a minute or two. The water will turn brown and it's going to look kind of ugly. It may even turn black. Pour that water off, and at the bottom of the bowl is this little white layer of potato starch. 
Those potatoes you lift it out go back into the bowl and get mixed up well, so all that potato starch goes back onto those potatoes for the hash browns. Now that does a couple things. One, it browns nicely, but it also helps keep the inside nice and, well, I hate to say the M word, but it, that's what it makes. If you do this regularly, you've likely noticed that even with all of this effort, it isn't quite the same as the frozen hash brown patty. Well, aside from some chemistry you can't pick, pronounce, or grow, they add some fat. They usually add something terrible, like canola oil or soy oil. I use peanut oil, but melted butter or melted bacon fat's just fine. Melted goose fat's even better if you've got it. So that fat goes into the bowl that has the grated potatoes that have been drained with ex-potato starch, and that fat's also going to help make them M-word, but it's also going to help them not stick and not burn. And burned potatoes, no matter where in the world you are, are yuck. Let's get back to the fries. After a nice hour-long bath or so in the refrigerator, you can let them soak overnight if you need to, also in the refrigerator, remove them from the water, and dump them into a colander. Now, it's tempting to want to just tip the bucket bottom side up and let everything pour out. But this is a case where we want the starch to stay in the bottom of the bowl or the bottom of the bucket. That starch, so if you take a French, if you take a potato, cut it and fry it, the starch will brown almost immediately, which isn't really a bad thing, except it doesn't the French fry will look dunner dunner than it is. And you go to bite into it and say, yeah, this is yuck. So we want that starch to go away in this case, because we want we have a plan. And the plan is this. Uh, we're gonna fry them a bit. But the trick is, we're going to do something called blanching. Kind of like when you do the tomatoes to canned tomatoes, you blanch them in hot water for 30 seconds. Well, we're going to do that with potatoes, but it's, it's backwards a little bit. We're going to blanch them in 300 degree fat for a few minutes. Now, I don't know how many potatoes you have. I don't know how big your fryer is, but just until you start to see the translucency change. Even if they get a little teeny bit brown, that's not a problem. When that happens, lift them out of the 300 degree fat, turn and let them drain on the machine or on the fat, um, what do you call it, the deep fryer, uh, turn your fryer up to 350 degrees. When the fat is hot, now we're going to fry those potatoes. Now here's the thing that's kind of fun. Uh, a couple of things are going to happen. One, you're going to end up with a really nice, soft inside of the potato and a good crispy crunchy on the outside. The crispy crunchy won't necessarily last because there's a lot of moisture inside. Yeah, I said the word inside the potato, but you're going to get a really great color on that French fry. And if we've, if you've done your job well, and I don't know how to tell you to do this, um, you may see some big puffy bubbles. Now, one of the really hard things to do with a potato is to make something called pommes souffle. So you, you need a mandolin for this, and you cut the potato maybe an eighth of an inch thick. Uh, you cut it square or rectangular so there's no edges. And, and here's where it gets, here's where it gets weird because the potatoes were all different and I've tried a variety of ways and, and had some success, but mostly not. Success means that this little eighth of an inch slab, tiny thin plank of potato goes into the 350 degree fat and it goes poof like a pillow. 
It's amazing when it happens. It's hard to do. If you can perfect this skill, boy, it's going to be impressive. And it's great with just some fresh herbs and salt. But your french fries might just get these big sort of souffle-y bubbles on the outside. And that's just a smile. So if you do that, don't think good thoughts. That's a double thumbs up. That's a Sicilian Ebert. We approve. Great thing. I like my french fries a little bit extra cooked just because I like that flavor. And then I season them with Danny's Season Salt, which is kind of like that one you buy in the store that has a big L on it. Well, I make my own because the store version, the one you buy in the store, has added sugar. I don't want that. There's no sugar in mine. Potatoes have reached far and wide, and now even China grows them. You can travel and eat the world out of potatoes alone and never leave your house. And now grocery stores have fingerling potatoes, which are, well, kind of what they say. They're random in size and length and color. And the colors, there's, I think, six different varieties, but all kind of like, if not your fingers, somebody's fingers, uh, in not necessarily straight form. And they're all mostly waxy in that when you cook them and, and bite into them, some of them are just Oh my God. It's just, it's, it's like potato puree inside the skin. They're just amazing. They have, they have, potatoes have flavor. <laughs> don't let somebody tell you they don't. Some of them may taste like the soil where they came from, but they have flavor. They're not insipid. They're just kind of simple. Those fingerling potatoes irregularity is a feature, not a bug. Most of them I said are creamy. Some of them are a little bit starchy. Purple potatoes uh, of any size are going to be on the starchy side, and, and lots of starch. So they do make, and if you can get the bigger ones, not the fingerlings, you can find them like, like medium-sized beach rocks, but they taste better. Wow. Now, the color's kind of funky. It's kind of, <laughs> the kids might say, what's this? But purple potatoes make a spectacular mashed potato. That uh, So that fingerling, they are especially nice accompanied with scallops or with shrimp with nice big lump crab meat. They're good to be made into potato salads, or you can uh, olive oil them and coarse, yeah, easy for me to say, coarse sea salt, black pepper, extra virgin olive oil in the oven, nice and roasted. Oh man, are they good? And nice additions to uh, caramelized, well, lightly caramelized Brussels sprouts. Make sure you add the bacon. All right, one last one. A scalloped potato to end all scalloped potato dishes. Now, they can come with fancy names, but let's just stick with scalloped. It can have any kind of cheese. It's really potatoes and cheese and cream and fat and salt. It's just and bacon. Yeah, pretty much don't need anything else. Uh, for this scalloped potato dish, I peel them. Now, a note about that green layer. Now, there's a couple of weird science things going on. I don't want to confuse you, but the green, of course, is chlorophyll because that's what green is. The green isn't the problem, although it's a sign of a problem. The problem is this alkaloid called solanine. So the green has a visual clue that we don't want that. Solanine is an alkaloid, an alkaloid, easy for me to say again, and it's a poison. Now, hang on a minute. Uh, it's, it's not going to kill you dead cyanide poison, but something we want to avoid. Uh, alkaloids are also uh, familiar to us in the form of tobacco nicotine as opposed to solanine, and other nightshade plants, such as tomatoes and eggplant. 
It does not cook out, but it can be peeled away, and therefore we have no problems. If your potatoes are growing, little sprouts, sometimes called eyes, cut them out, remove them from the plant, because those also contain solanine. And why would you want to eat that anyway? It just looks yuck. Slice the peeled potatoes free of solanine carefully on a mandolin. No DNA. Uh, I layer mine, so I cut them instead of cutting them lengthwise, put the potato, so you're cutting the discs like potato coins. I layer mine on a well-buttered straight-sided casserole with, and then I have used grated Gruyere cheese. You can use any cheese you want, uh, heavy cream, and crispy small chopped bacon. I want little tiny pieces so it kind of gets everywhere. So this is really a dish greater than the sum of its parts. The sliced potatoes layered on the bottom, overlapping a little bit, then put some, then pour some, a little bit of, little bit of cream, just enough to barely wet the bottom, sprinkle some Gruyere cheese and the bacon bits. Repeat that again, 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 again. Uh, potatoes, cream, cheese, bacon, potatoes, cream, cheese, bacon, all the way to the top, ending with cream and cheese. Now, butter a piece of foil. It doesn't matter to me who's shiny or not shiny. I don't think it matters in this case. Uh, butter that so when you lift it, it doesn't stick too much. And in the oven it goes. It's going to take probably an hour for a skewer or something sharp and long and pointy to go through the very middle. We're looking for soft. We want done. When the potato is done, and if you want a little bit of brown, that's fine. Take the foil off, let it brown. Let that rest on the counter for at least 20 minutes. So all of the melty stuff, we've had a lot going on in there. So this cream is going to boil and the cheese is melting and cheese and bacon bits are sort of moving around even though nothing's moving. We have this boiling action happening. So we want everybody to just sort of settle back down. We want that starch to come back and hold things together. Uh, it won't do that when it's really, really hot, but it will do that when it gets cool. And the cheese and the cream will go back into the potato. And that is our loveliness. Make those for some special occasion or for any occasion at all. And nobody will care anything about your politics. They'll just want more of those potatoes. There's a lot to know and say about the potato. And it just doesn't all fit into one podcast episode. The potato has saved whole cultures from starvation served as money, traveled the world, survived a blight, which, by the way, still exists, and through all the diet fads and fancies, it still remains. A bit more of the nerd stuff. Lignans. Lignans are a relatively newly studied aspect of food and the food impact on digestion and there's maybe even newer fields of gut biome health. There is a great deal of content about lignans, antivitamins, and more, but that's for another show, and I'm actually looking for somebody who can speak about that. What is relevant here is potatoes have lignans, and for some people, lignans can interfere with good digestion and the absorption of nutrients. What that means is some people will not feel well, there may be two things. They may not be digesting their food well, so they're not getting the full nutritional aspect of their food, but also they may feel bloated after eating potatoes or other lignin-containing foods. 
Uh, again, this is something that's important, and it is for another show, and I'm working on getting this information because this is good stuff. All the traits that we were told are valuable, which I mentioned at the beginning. Low sodium, low fat, high carbs, we now know, well, they may not be true. Sodium isn't evil, and I wrote a whole blog post about that. Carbs turn to sugar, which causes some problems, and I talked to Kyle Mamonas in a podcast about that. So eat a baked potato with loads of sour cream, lots of cheddar cheese, and heaps of bacon. <laughs> I'm, hey, listen, this is not medical advice. This is gustatory advice. In that event, enjoy your potatoes. If you're on keto, don't enjoy your potatoes. But it's a fun thing to eat, and it's a good book to read, a little bit of fun history, and that's what we got for today. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I have a plan to keep on with the ingredient theme. Not every week, but more of them. I like doing it, and I hope you like listening and maybe learning something. If you have a food or ingredient that interests you and want me to talk about it, send me an email. The address is dan at culinarylibertarian.com. Uh, it needs to be something everyone can reasonably access not some delicate herb that grows in the cracks of the sidewalks of Rome for just two blocks in the third week of July. And such a restriction would also include Huitlacoche, too rare and infrequent to get. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher and join us in the Eating Liberty Facebook group. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.